Welcome to A New History of Old San Antonio, Episode 8, San Antonio Strong. I'm Brandon Seal. Colonel Domingo Cabello y Robles had first seen combat at the age of 17. Born in Spain, he served for the first part of his career in Cuba, where he would fend off English attacks for seven years. By the age of 24, he had been promoted to major and tasked with the defense of Florida against both European enemies and native ones. And in 1762, he was given the governorship of Nicaragua, which he held until 1776 when he was sent to San Antonio to become the new governor of Texas. But for all that Cabello y Robles had seen, he hadn't experienced anything like San Antonio. In Cuba, Florida, and Nicaragua, he had never had to deal with civilian politics. Yet here, in San Antonio, he walked straight into the hornet's nest of political unrest caused by General Teodoro de Croix's attempt to tax the Texas cattle business out of existence. As cattle was one of the few cash-producing activities in the province, the general's tax was seen as a direct, malicious attack on San Antonian's livelihood, and it was left to Governor Cabello y Robles to enforce it, for which his popularity would permanently suffer. Even more worrisome for the new governor was the situation with the natives. After a hard-won peace against the Apaches in 1749 and the Battle of the Twin Villages against the Comanches in 1759, a fragile decade of comparative calm allowed San Antonians to catch their breath. But by 1770, a new generation of Indian warriors had come of age on the plains, each itching to live up to the legends of their fathers. The Comanches slowly resumed their horse raiding, which by 1770 they were doing so regularly and so frequently that the Presidio was unable to mount a response for most of that decade. And with the Apaches, any pretense of alliance or even peace long since vanished. Listen carefully to these numbers. In Texas, between 1771 and 1778, Apaches stole 68,256 head of livestock, kidnapped 154 children, and killed 1,674 people, in a province whose population probably barely topped 3,000 during the period. And recall that San Antonio is Texas for most of this period. The East Texas settlements had been withdrawn again to San Antonio a few years before. Goliad had virtually no civilian community and depended heavily on San Antonio, and Laredo, founded in 1755, was considered part of Tamaulipas. Ongoing immigration helped to repopulate the San Antonio area, yet once again, the town fell into a state of siege. At one point, the vecinos of San Fernando, the town center of San Antonio's many different communities, petitioned the governor to move them all elsewhere until the threat could be addressed. This the new governor could not do, yet he was able to find reinforcements for the Presidio, which grew to approximately 100 men by 1780. Governor Caballo y Robles continued to analyze the situation. By now, public and royal sentiment had turned decisively against the Apaches, who were viewed as dishonest and bloodthirsty. Comanche horse-stealing, by comparison, seemed relatively minor. As well, by now Comanche hatred for the Apaches was a well-known fact, yet Spanish contacts with Comanches were limited, owing to their late arrival on the scene and the distance of their primary settlements. The governor began to fantasize about a Spanish-Comanche alliance against the Apaches, yet he had no idea how to bring it about. On July 18, 1784, the answer rode into town in the form of a 22-year-old man. By the clothes he wore, by the tattoos on his skin, by the piercings in his eyebrows, and by the way he sat his horse, no one had any reason to believe he was anything other than a Plains Indian. The mystery man, whose birth name was Francisco Chavez, had been born in Albuquerque in 1762 to a line of Spanish Indian fighters that could trace their descent back to Coronado. At the age of eight, he was captured by Comanches, whose language he learned amidst a many-year ordeal as their slave. He was eventually sold to the Tayolayas, close allies of the Comanches, with whom he would live until the age of 22. On July 18, 1784, his Tayovaya band went raiding for horses in the San Antonio area. As the rest of his band began to head north back into the hill country, Chavez saw his opportunity. Chavez had, apparently, neither lost memory of the Spanish language nor his desire to return to the Spanish world. 
and so he pretended to be having a problem with his saddle. His fellow raiders, fearful of the imminent retaliatory response from town, grew impatient and sped off into the distance without him. Chavez turned and rode into San Antonio. He was brought immediately before Governor Caballero Robles. Here, the governor soon realized, was the opportunity that he'd been waiting for, an emissary that he could send forth to speak to the Comanches in their own language and plead the case for a strategic alliance. The next year, the governor paired off Chavez with a French trader named Pedro Vial, who claimed that he had traveled extensively in Comancheria and knew exactly which Comanche chiefs they needed to talk to. And so, in the spring of 1785, Chavez and Vial set off. They quickly connected with some Comanche bands that Chavez knew and were guided to a large Comanche camp, probably the same village on the Red River which was the scene of the Battle of the Twin Villages in Episode 6. Upon arrival, they informed the Comanches that they'd come bearing an important message from the Capitan Grande in San Antonio and asked for the honor of sharing that message with any and all chiefs that would come hear it. Chavez and Vial then spent an uncomfortable week in the village waiting to see whether anyone would come or, as was perhaps the more likely outcome, whether they would even be allowed to leave with their scalps attached to their heads. But the Comanche chiefs did come, albeit with reluctance and a great deal of skepticism. And though Pedro Vial will later tell the tale, it was Chavez at the time who had to do the talking, being the only one of the two fluent in the Comanche and Tayovaya tongues. Chavez began by offering gifts of knives and tobacco from the Capitan Grande in San Antonio, referring, of course, to Governor Cabello y Robles. Surely the Comanches knew that these were but trinkets from the great stores of wealth available to the Capitan Grande, Chavez told them. He wouldn't try to deceive these great chiefs, Chavez said, who also had to know that the Capitan Grande's heart had grown cold toward the Comanches, who continued to raid in his lands. The Capitan Grande was a man who only wanted peace, Chavez continued, yet he wasn't a man who was afraid of war. Then, instead of threatening or begging or rationalizing the advantages of an alliance, Chavez began to cry. His crying grew into wails, taking on the tones of a Comanche death song before the assembled chiefs, who inquired as to why he was making such an unmanly display. It was because of the profound sadness he felt, Chavez said, at the thought of the Spanish making war on such good people as the Comanches, and yet it seemed inevitable now, especially as the misunderstandings between these two great empires only compounded. Chavez claimed that he had tried to explain to the Capitan Grande that the Comanches had never killed a Spaniard without provocation or without proper honor. He had explained to the Capitan Grande that the Comanches, like all great people, were friendly to their allies and ferocious to their enemies. The Spanish were no different. Why couldn't these great empires focus on all they had in common rather than continue along blindly on a path to war from which only the Apaches as bystanders would emerge victorious? Very well, the Capitan Grande had told him. If the Comanches desire friendship, I will grant it to them. Let them come to me in San Antonio as friends and in peace and with honest intentions, not like those scoundrel Apaches who know only deceit and war. Chavez's speech was subtle but brilliant. It provoked a night's worth of debate by the Comanche chiefs that became so heated and noisy that the San Antonians feared at any moment that their hosts might storm into the tent and send their scalps back to San Antonio as their response. But the omens were favorable, the reasoning sound, and Chavez's rhetoric masterful. The next morning, the chiefs returned to Chavez and Vial's tent and said that if the Capitan Grande was willing to forget past injustices, they were too. They would send three chiefs back to San Antonio to talk terms. In October 1785, Governor Cabello y Robles, Chavez, and three Comanche chiefs sat down in San Antonio and negotiated an extraordinary treaty that the Comanches would largely honor for the rest of Texas's life as a Spanish province. The most important terms were as follows. 1. The Comanches would cease hostilities not just against San Antonio, but against all subjects of the Spanish king. 2. The Apaches were to be the declared enemies of both, yet each party would seek the permission of the other before entering their territory to make war. And 3. The Spanish would provide annual gifts to the Comanche chiefs, and the Comanches would be given access to Spanish trade in San Antonio, provided that they committed not to trade with any other Europeans. In years past, San Antonio had won its peace through arms. 
This time, it had won peace through diplomacy, and moreover, secured for itself the position as the gateway to trade with the great Comanche Empire. The Crown would eventually recognize San Antonio's exclusive monopoly on trade with the Comanches, who would come to town several times a year and stay in a lodge 144 feet long by 15 feet wide that San Antonio merchants built for them. San Antonians and Comanches would also hunt buffalo together annually, from which experience San Antonians would only further refine their skills as horsemen. Chavez would go on to enlist in the San Antonio Presidio as a cavalryman and interpreter, where he would serve until 1829. In 1786, he married a Canary Islander, by whom he would eventually father six children, and then an additional five by a second wife. One of his granddaughters would marry the famous Judge Roy Bean, the self-proclaimed law west of the Pecos. But peace with the Comanches was not the end goal of the Chavez Vial expedition, merely a piece of Governor Cabello y Robles' grand plan to pacify the Apaches. And the Apaches had grown increasingly bold in the late 1700s, as they had reunited with their Mescalero cousins to the west, noticeably boosting their strength. In 1779, Governor Cabello y Robles announced the policy of total war against the Apaches, and coordinated a retaliatory campaign against them with General Juan de Ugalde, the comandante of all the northern provinces of New Spain. For most of a decade, General Ugalde personally led the pursuit of the Apaches throughout northern Coahuila, the Big Bend area, the hill country, and the Pecos River Valley. After a lull in 1783, Apache raiding reached its peak in 1784. In June alone of that year, they killed 46 Texans, many of them San Antonians. At one point, the Apaches outmaneuvered General Ugalde and attacked San Antonio in broad daylight, almost managing to kill the governor in the middle of the Plaza de Armas. In early 1789, however, General Ugalde regained the initiative and began to harry the Apaches mercilessly. The entire countryside was his battlefield, from Monclova up to San Saba, over to the Big Bend, and the Apaches found no peace. General Ugalde and his new Comanche allies funneled the Apaches toward a spot on the Sabanao River, about 80 miles west of San Antonio, where they met in one final battle. Sometimes referred to as the Battle of Soledad Creek, you might more readily recognize the location as the town of Uvalde, which was a later corruption of the pronunciation of General Ugalde's name. There, on January 9, 1790, Ugalde's force, which included 52 militiamen from San Antonio, surprised and annihilated the last 300 Apache warriors remaining in the field. After the Battle of Soledad Creek, the Apaches were a broken nation. Never again would they menace San Antonio the way that they had for the first 70 years of their existence. By some estimates, after a decade of war with General Ugalde and the forces from San Antonio, there might have been as few as 1,000 male Apaches left alive, most of whom retreated into the South Texas Monte. For the first time since its founding, San Antonio would know now almost an entire generation of peace. Hated though he was at the time for his half-hearted attempts to enforce the unpopular cattle tax, Governor Caballo y Robles deserves credit for his successful strategy in pacifying San Antonio's historic enemies from the plains. And in truth, his response to the tax protests had been to grant more lands to San Antonians, thus reducing the size of the public domain to which the taxes applied and accelerating the opening of vast new lands for San Antonio's long-suffering settlers, who could finally make productive use of those lands now that the Indian threat had subsided. The peace of the 1790s and early 1800s finally made the rest of the province safe for development as well, including Nacogdoches and the parts of East Texas that would soon attract the eye of Anglo-Americans. It also heightened for San Antonians the awareness of their own distinct identity apart from the rest of New Spain, which we can see in at least three different ways. First, they began to assert themselves more politically, as with the cattle tax, and to take pride in the unique vitality of their local political institutions. Indeed, if early San Antonio was known for anything in particular to vice-regal authorities, it was for the perceived fractiousness and heatedness of its local politics. Sometimes today we're inclined to lament contentiousness in government as the sign of a dysfunctional political system. I think it might actually be the hallmark of a healthy one, so long as that contentiousness remains contained within the rules of the system itself. And in San Antonio it did. As an example, San Antonio was remarkable for its relatively honest elections. 
In contrast, historian Vito Alessio Robles notes that in Saltillo at the same time, councilmen could be bought as easily as, quote, banging a drum, end quote. In Parras, the city council positions were just hereditary. In Monterrey, the city council waited for the town crier to tell them how they were supposed to vote based on who had put up the most money. And in Tamaulipas, well, things were, quote, even worse, end quote. Second, the frontier had almost entirely dissolved the rigidity of the new Spanish caste system in 1790 San Antonio, giving San Antonians a nuanced view of their own identities. Father Morphy of the previous episode reminds us that San Antonio's city council at this time was, quote, a ragged band of men of all colors, end quote. If we are to believe census and church records, pure-blooded Spaniards represented 50% of the population of the town by 1793. But that number defies credulity, and probably more accurately approximates the number of property-owning, tax-paying citizens. And we see interesting signs of social mobility in San Antonio, or at the very least, of racial fluidity. For example, Francisco de Urrutia is classified as a mestizo in 1744, a coyote in 1754, a Spaniard in 1760, and then back to a coyote in 1764. Coyote, recall, is the offspring of a mestizo and an Indian. Joaquin de Medina shows up as a mulatto in 1750, a Spaniard in 1754, a mulatto again in 1757, a mestizo in 1761, and then a Spaniard in 1763. And my favorite is, of course, Pedro Huizar, sculptor of San Jose's Rose Window from episode 4, who begins life in San Antonio as a mulatto carpenter in 1778, is a Spanish surveyor by 1793, and by 1798 is Don Alcalde of the San Jose Mission Community. Again, in a small, isolated community, hardship, intermarriage, and compadrasco could only have blurred racial and class lines, all of which also served to keep political antagonisms within the bounds of the system. As the Ayuntamiento, or City Council of San Antonio, would respond to one outsider's complaint of nepotism there, quote, here, we're all related, end quote. If blood relations were a disqualifier for holding office or letting government contracts, they continued, we'd all be forever disqualified from everything. And third, despite internal political factions and even some ideological differences, San Antonians were now united in their feeling that the Spanish government was unavailable or indifferent when it was really needed, and nothing but intrusive and oppressive when it wasn't. As Vito Alessio Robles points out, in 1790, San Antonio reported to San Luis Potosí for tax matters, to Monclova for political matters, to Chihuahua and Monterrey for military matters, and to Guadalajara for legal and religious matters. It was downright confusing, and only served to reinforce San Antonians' feelings of isolation. And over time, isolation can morph into something that looks a lot like independence. Concluding, Alessio Robles says that by 1790, San Antonio's, and I'm going to say this in Spanish first so you get the flavor, quote, vinculación racial y económica con el resto de la Nueva España era asas débil casi nula, end quote. That is, her cultural and economic ties to the rest of New Spain were exceedingly weak and effectively non-existent. Alessio Robles continues, quote, the landscape was admirably well prepared for a revolution, end quote. In the next episode, San Antonio, along with the rest of Mexico, revolts and San Antonio will play a tragically leading role. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review, because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend Noel McKay for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. For this episode, I'd like to recommend you all check out the Texas State Historical Association's Handbook of Texas Online. I've used the Handbook of Texas Online more times than I can even reference for this project, and you can have a lot of fun tripping around on its pages. And for this episode, my recommendation is to go to the rodeo. This year, 2018, it's going on from February 8th to February 25th. Go to the rodeo and know that you're taking part in a 300-year-old San Antonio tradition. 